This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, wouldn't it be perfect if we could just be perfect, right? What if all of the limitations that you face on your daily life, they just disappeared? If there were some bit of technology that could help us navigate through life? Well, of course, this is the stuff of movies. We see it all the time in in books and movies and television shows of people with superhuman abilities or people who just are able to use technology in in such a way as to not ever have any problems ever again. Whatever we can conceive of typically becomes fiction and fantasy, which in time becomes possibility, which matures into actuality, which sometimes feels like it becomes inevitability. And we're talking today about the perils of perfection. We're speaking with Dr. Joseph Vukov, who is an associate professor in the philosophy department at Loyola University in Chicago. He's also the associate director for the Hank Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola and an affiliate faculty member in Catholic Studies and Psychology. Nationally, Vukov also serves as the vice president of Philosophers in Jesuit Education. His research explores questions at the intersection of ethics, neuroscience, and philosophy of mind, and at the intersection of science and religion. He's a prolific author of articles and monographs, including Navigating Faith and Science, and the topic of today's conversation, The Perils of Perfection on the Limits and Possibilities of Human Enhancement. This is part of the Magenta series at New City Press, and he also has an upcoming book that's going to grapple with questions arising from new forms of artificial intelligence. That's a topic, though, for another day. Dr. Vukov, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me, TL. So let's talk about this question because... So often we get caught up in the the minutia or the the arguments of our day, which seem to be so pressing and urgent, and we just kind of absorb the the conversation going on around enhancement without really taking the time to consider it. And that perhaps is the most dangerous way to approach it because we're not examining it or thinking critically about it. And there are extremes to avoid, and there are pathways uh, to to. I think, carefully tread when it comes to these questions of human enhancement. So as we begin, let's first define what we mean. What is human enhancement? Yeah. So, I mean, like, like any philosophical question, it's one that's contested. One that I particularly like is thinking about enhancements in contrast to treatments or therapies. So you can think about certain kinds of interventions that are clearly aimed to try and bring somebody back up to a baseline level of human functioning. So a real everyday classic example, you and I both wear glasses. I don't know if yours are prescriptions. Mine certainly are. I can't see a thing without my glasses on. But if I put my glasses on, I don't think I quite get to 2020, but it's someplace close by there. It's a treatment. It's an intervention. It's something I'm doing to myself that allows my eyesight to function normally so that I can drive a car and do things like that, Um, read a book without holding it up an inch away from my face. Um, So those kinds of interventions are treatments or therapies because they bring our function up to a normal or healthy level. An enhancement can be defined against that and that enhancements explicitly aim to take our functioning to some 
threshold beyond merely healthy or baseline functioning. Um, so into this category fits things like, and we might talk about this today, things like using genetic engineering to create designer babies or Terminator style robotic implants, things like that. But one thing I wanted to start out with is sort of taking the conversation down a notch by pointing out that on that definition of enhancement, taking somebody beyond normal or healthy functioning, some really everyday things count as enhancements too. So a pair of binoculars allows you to see longer than normal healthy human eyes can, counts as an enhancement. I have yet in all my conversations about these topics and these issues to meet anyone who's anti-binoculars. So enhancements, I think they, they do raise important ethical questions, but for better or for worse, it's not going to be black and white where we can say enhancements across the board because they aim to take us beyond healthy functioning are ethically problematic because I think there's are enhancements that are pretty clearly ethically okay for us to use. And even a step further, so often we see people who who will viscerally respond to the, the, the research going on in an area which could lead to enhancement. Um, so, for instance, in the book, you mentioned the, the CRISPR uh, the genetic uh, modification. Um, and yet, so often, the line between modification, enhancement, and therapy is merely application. The technology, in many cases, is the same. And so, the research into that that technology while at first glance seems foreign and and threatening, is something that could still in the long run be not only ethical but beneficial for humanity as opposed to merely transcending or, or somehow degrading the dignity of the person. Yeah, exactly. It's a really important point that when we talk about enhancements, it's very rare that you can talk about a single technology being an enhancement because the context matters and the application matters, as you already talked about. Um, an example I use a lot, I grew up in rural Minnesota um, and I had Grandpa Jerry and Uncle Mike. And Grandpa Jerry and Uncle Mike both used a hearing aid. But for Grandpa Jerry, it was because he worked in the mines his whole life. He couldn't hear anything without his hearing aids in. It was a treatment. Uncle Mike, on the other hand, used it because he was an avid deer hunter. And he put in his hearing aid so he could hear a soft-toed buck while he was out hunting. In that case, it's an enhancement. So this has nothing to do with the ethics of hunting or anything like that. Um, it's rather... Uh, an example that's supposed to show that the exact same technology, in this case, a hearing aid, can be used with Grandpa Jerry as a treatment and with Uncle Mike as an enhancement. And the same thing goes for these newer, more cutting edge kind of scary technologies. In CRISPR-Cas9, the technology that is most commonly used to allow us to use make genetic modifications actually winds up being the same way. So can you use that to make designer babies and tweak genes in a way that looks like a new form of eugenics? Yes, you can. And I maybe we'll talk about this later, but I think that's that's to most people, I think, obviously problematic to apply it in that way. But you can also use the exact same technology to cure certain kinds of genetic diseases. And there's very few people actually who think there's anything problematic with that. So it's a really important point that enhancement is never or very rarely can be applied to a technology. It's rather the technology used for certain ends in a certain context with certain people. You kind of need the whole story before you can even decide, is this a case of enhancement to begin with? Mm -hmm. So we do have a mindset among a subset of the populace that looks for how can I transcend what I am uh, and, and be 
more with the help of of enhancement. And that could be um, everything from the the baseball doping scandal uh, to uh, I'm at the top of my game, but it's not good enough for me. So how do I go just a little bit further? Or it could just be perhaps something that that isn't ethically problematic, like you know, I want to, I want to be a bird watcher and I can't see what I want to see with what I have. So I'm going to pick up some binoculars. How do we begin to draw the lines of distinction between what is uh, ethically permissible and, and maybe even laudable to those things which cross that line to where it somehow diminishes our dignity in doing so? Yeah, I think one thing that, so, so a word first of all, about the, the group of people that you were mentioning, I think it's helpful to give them a name. Um, there are a certain group that advocates for human enhancement across the board. They're very into life extension technologies and other, you know, neural implants to help your brain function better. Sort of, if you can think of it, if you can write about it in a sci-fi novel, they're into it. They're called the transhumanists. Um, and there actually are transhumanists out there. There's scholars that label themselves transhumanists. Probably the most famous is this guy, Nick Bostrom, who works out of Oxford. It's also, if you look up, I think I looked the the transhumanist Reddit thread, which is not all scholars. It's just people on the internet, something like 2 million people. So this is not a niche movement. There's a lot of people out there who, even if they're not scholars, say, yes, I'm a transhumanist, or I want to talk about these ideas. But I think, and you hinted at this too, TL, I think it's important to recognize that there's a little transhumanist in a lot of us, and there's a lot of transhumanist in the culture. So you might, it's easy to sort of see these people, they look a little out there sometimes and how gung-ho they are about enhancement. But that little part of us that says, I want to live more efficiently, just a little smarter, just a little bit longer life. Um, that's not full-scale transhumanism, but that is transhumanist motivations operating there. So it, it's both congealed into certain sets of scholars and forums on the internet, but it's also a wider movement that I think seeps its way into a lot of the modern consciousness. Um, the second thing is what you brought up, which is when it starts crossing the line. And I think that where it starts crossing the line, and this is, I've already suggested that it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where it's, it's, it's overly simplistic to say enhancement is always bad. It's not. Binoculars are okay. Um, I, I'm very open to hearing an argument from someone who thinks they're not. I have yet to find a good one. Um, so we can't say enhancement across the board is not okay. We we can't even say this technology is not okay because context matters. So in my book and in what I've been thinking about lately, I really try to think about what are the underlying motivations and assumptions underlying our pursuit and application of a given technology? So take even something like striving to live a longer life. Um, this is a, a sort of a classic transhumanist goal is how can I radically, or at least by 20 or 30% extend my life. And clearly there's a good thing about living longer. That's a, you know, it, it's, provides us with the opportunity to pursue more projects. It's overall good to live a long, healthy life. But at the same time, a lot of times underneath that project is the assumption that a long life is always better than a short life, or that more years is always better than less years. And that gets really close to this idea that the stronger, the longer lived, the smarter, the more abled are better or more fully human beings than those that aren't living like that. And 
because that motivation is back there and because I'm coming from a Catholic perspective, but I actually think it's a perspective a lot of folks outside of specifically Catholic circles share is that that's not the Catholic view. The Catholic view says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, It asks us to protect the vulnerable. So I think that a lot of these projects, while sort of seemingly innocent on the surface, I want to live longer. I want to work more efficiently. I want my brain to function in in a more robust and efficient way. There is one way in which those motivations are um are are okay and ethically okay and make sense. But I think a lot of times underneath those projects, there's this underlying motivation that's deeply problematic. And I think that once we've identified that, I think it does take the wind out of the sails of a lot of these projects because we see, no, that's, that's actually not what I view as a valuable life to begin with. And once we see that, I think it changes the conversation really rapidly. And I think the transhumanist project loses a lot of its steam. I also get the sense that in some way there is an attempt to, in a Tower of Babel kind of way, to touch the divine, to be like God without God, right? So if I if I can live forever or if I can somehow uh, connect my consciousness to, to some database that I can then have infinite learning and infinite knowledge, then then I will have attained without having to go through any kind of humbling experience of humbling myself before the divine. Yeah, there's this largely medieval, a little bit later than that way of thinking um, called the great chain of being, Um, sort of a notorious way of ordering the cosmos where you think about the great chain of being starts with God, then proceeds down to orders of angels. Then there's humans, then there's animals and there's plants. You You can kind of imagine how this is going to get laid out. You don't have to buy into that whole cosmology to see one of the points that I think is really important that it makes is that humans and what it means to flourish as a human and what it means to be a good human is different than what it is to be divine, is different than what it is to be angelic. And I think sometimes in our quest for perfection, we lose sight of that. We aim for a kind of angelic or divine version of perfection, you know, the all-knowing being or the the everlasting or eternal being. Um, and we forget that that's not where we lie in the great chain of being. And again, you don't have to buy the whole great chain of being co- cosmology to appreciate the fact that what human perfection is going to look like is not the same thing as divine or angelic perfection. It's going to be something thoroughly human. And that's why when we think about the way the Catholic Church, but I think other traditions too, think about what does perfection look like as a human being and think about your roster of saints. And it looks nothing like that. Why? Because that's the church's vision of human perfection. And what human perfection looks like is just something very different than another sort of perfection, like a divine perfection. Um, so yeah, I think I think sort of, it's a good opportunity to, for, for us to reflect on who we are and what what striving for perfection as a human might look like to begin with. Well, let's take a step back and, and look at the definition of perfection, because if we pull out the dictionary, we're going to see a couple of different numbers there, and each one has a different sense of the definition. And I feel like most often in the Western world, we tend to look at perfection with the definition of flawless or of the pinnacle. 
Whereas often in scripture, the definition that we see of perfection is of wholeness or completeness. And so a thing is perfect, not when it's flawless and and shimmering. A thing is perfect when it is most like itself. Uh, And so for us to be perfect is not somehow to attain uh, the, the superhuman or supernatural ability or, or expression, but rather to be perfectly human is to be a human at its most honest. Yeah. And I think one way that that can be brought out, especially clearly is to think about our conception of perfection for other kinds of beings. So think about a perfectly flourishing house plant. Um, that doesn't mean it can crush the SAT or code in three or four different languages. No, that would be a human version of intelligence. A perfect houseplant is something that's doing well as a houseplant. Or think about what a perfect, you know, certain breed of dog or a certain kind of animal looks like. Um, the perfection is always going to be defined relative to what kind of thing that it is. So again, I think this is where in in some ways i'm i'm not against perfection so this book is called the perils of perfection um there's certain kinds of perfection that are very good for us to aim for. Christ calls us to aim to be perfect. So there there's this this biblical injunction that we're supposed to strive to be perfect. Um but it's a human kind of perfection. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And I think that when we substitute in a different kind of perfection, and I, I like the way you put it, T.L., this sort of flawlessness or sort of this, you know, I don't know, shiny, efficient, 200-year-old, sort of the version of perfection I think that we think of when a lot of us, not just transhumanists, but a lot of us, when we think what is the perfect life or the perfect human being, we get this vision that actually is ultimately very inhuman. And I think that's the perils of perfection is when we substitute in the human perfection that we should be pursuing for an inhuman kind of perfection that inevitably we won't be able to attain, but also it distorts our humanity in the process of pursuing it. Mm Another a picture that I have of this idea of perfection is thinking of like the perfect city. There's this, this sense of uh, straight lines and rigid order and, and a certain crystalline precision to it. And so we look at that and we see uh, the, the pixel perfect nature of it. And we go, wow, look at, look at the energy and the effort and the creativity that was put into that. However, I'm up in the Pacific Northwest and I go up to the mountains all the time and, and the picture of of perfection out there is is organic and natural and and in some ways uh, the the plants intertwine with one another and there's there is definitely an order but it is not a precise order it is a very wild and organic order and and I think that the perfection that we are called to as as Christians and as Catholics is is a kind of perfection that is messy and intertwined with the rest of the things that were around us and not crystalline and ordered and, and never uh, deviating or from its course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think thinking deeply about sacramental theology and incarnational theology and our own nature as embodied beings, I think it brings out exactly what you were getting at is that any kind of human perfection is going to be a kind of messy and human perfection. And it's not going to be this rigidly ordered kind of perfection. Um, There's a whole tradition of thinking about 
what perfection might look like as being sort of this mathematical ordering. It, it comes out of the Platonic and ultimately Gnostic traditions about sort of thinking of ourselves as this purely immaterial, um, you know, sort of being that, that um, can escape from the messiness of physical reality. And Catholics have, well, while we've liked Plato in certain ways, um, we've pushed back against this idea that the perfect human is purely immaterial or purely otherworldly. Um, that's, that's what incarnational sacramental theology is, is all about, is that Christ comes into our world and redeems it. He doesn't take us away from it. Um, so, yeah, I think that there really is a danger for the Christian and the Catholic, especially to sort of miss the whole point of what the cult of perfection is if we're following it into this otherworldly world of pure mathematics. And I like your description of the city is it's a mathematical, it's a, it's an immaterial city. Almost. It's a city that no one lives in. It's a city that's inhuman. Um, a human city is a lot messier. And, um, and at the end of the day, I think if you understand what, what humans are, I think it's a more perfectly human city too. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking here in this first segment about the 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 transhumanist idea, and and I tend to think of that as as the person who looks in the mirror and says, "I need to to become more perfect myself." But you also mentioned, and I want to spend some time looking at this, the idea of uh, of a new eugenics that says, "I want the the world around me to be perfect." So it's less looking in inward and more looking outward, and I think that even there, it comes from a uh, maybe a place of of genuine concern. We look at the suffering around us and we say, how can we av- avoid and avert the suffering around us? And gosh, if we could just stop these things before they became an issue, then think of how much good we could do. And yet they do so in a way, or the ideas to do so in a way that that tramples the the, the dignity inherent in the human person, even in the person who suffers. Yeah, exactly. I think that exactly what you said, and it's complicated because clearly there's a good drive to want a better world. And we, we imagine a world that is rid of suffering and we imagine a world that's more ordered completely towards God. And you can kind of fill that out. And clearly that's a good motivation, but I think oftentimes it's accompanied by this motivation and this assumption that there is nothing good to be found in suffering or that the life that includes suffering is somehow robbed of its dignity. Um, and we, again, it's, it's tricky because we don't want to put suffering on a pedestal. We don't want to say that suffering is always good. Um, but we also want to make sure that we don't slip into a sort of worldview that says that, that says that, if you live a life that includes suffering, your life is somehow less worthy. Um, my my metric that I always use for this sort of thing, TL, is to think about if we put our values and our decision-making and our view through kind of a filter and ask who comes out on top and who comes out as having the most dignified and the most worthy life. And the answer is clearly, oh, it's the ones with all the money and power and the ones that are, are you know able to 
use their influence to give themselves all the things that they want. Um, that's clearly a red flag. So, and I think sometimes this vision of a perfect society is one that you run that through the filter. And what is a perfect society? Oh, it's the one where these are the people who come out on top. And these are the ones who are really worthy of and truly living out their humanity. And I think that's problematic. So it is tricky because clearly the motivation to act for a more just and more perfect world is a good one. Um, I just think we always need to be sure to put the vulnerable first and to make sure that we are not implicitly endorsing any kind of idea that says that a life lived in poverty or a life to vulnerability or a life that's lived through suffering is somehow less worthy or less dignified than a life that isn't those things. Yeah. Uh, we threw the, the, the movie industry under the bus as we were getting started saying that how much they uh, iterate and imagine this kind of enhancement and perfection. And uh, we see that in all the superhero movies and, and whatnot, but there's also, I think a really strong trend in literature and, and in media to explore these questions and these, and these problems and shine a light on them in a way that maybe we wouldn't otherwise as a lay person consider. And so as you're talking about this, this kind of new eugenics, I think of the movie and I'm, I'm sure you've seen it, uh, Gattaca, where there, it's the whole question of what does it mean to be human in a society that's completely driven by, by perfection? And how does one navigate that uh, as, as someone who is unmodified? Um, are there any other maybe pieces of media books or movies that you have found really helpful in explaining some of the concepts that, that philosophers and ethicists are wrestling with today? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, there's, there's a lot out there. Um, there's a Netflix series. I, I recommend it hesitantly because it's definitely not PG rated, but, um, the series black mirror wrestles with this stuff all the time. Um, and I think it's, it's good in some ways because it, it does a good job of capturing this quest for perfection and this quest for sort of techno utopia and really reveals what, what I think is interesting, it's a, it's a purely secular show, but I think what it reveals it's really telling is that this thing that we all think we want actually isn't what we want to begin with. And sort of if, if this dream that you think you want comes true, it actually turns out to be a nightmare, um, which tracks with the Catholic view of things because the Catholic view says, well, I've got an explanation for that. It's because you were pursuing the wrong thing to begin with. So that's, that's, um, again, I, I recommend it with the asterisk that it's, it's, um, yeah, not the, um, is it's not PG rated. Um, I think science fiction generally does a really good job with this, um, sort of showing what a world might look like in which we've pursued some of the projects that seem like really good projects for us to pursue and painting how, in fact, that's, that's not worthwhile or that's not desirable. One that stuck with me for a long time, and I haven't read it for 30 years at this point, I probably read it in middle school, is this book, Tuck Everlasting. It's a, it's a, a junior, junior fiction book. And the main premise of the book, I'm probably giving spoilers away, and I probably don't remember it that well, but it stuck with me for a long time, is there's a central family in the book who never dies. And it's clearly a tragedy for them that they become friends with generations of people. Then their friends grow old and die and they have to move on to find a new group of people to live with. Um, and I think it sort of complicates that book specifically 
complicates the ways in which even things that are intuitively look very desirable, like a long life, turn out to be not so desirable in the end in some ways. We're talking today with Dr. Joseph Vukov, an associate professor of philosophy at Loyola University, Chicago. He's the author of the new book, The Perils of Perfection on the Limits and Possibilities of Human Enhancement, part of the Magenta series over at New City Press. That's newcitypress.com. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's topic. And don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. Today, we're talking about perfection. How do we get there? Well, not not the perfection you're thinking about. We're not necessarily talking about spiritual perfection, although there is certainly something to be said for that. We're talking about human perfection. And what if we could just, what if we could just solve all of our problems with technology? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, We're talking today with Dr. Uh, Joseph Vukov, who is the author of the new book, The Perils of Perfection on the Limits and Possibilities of Human Enhancements. It's part of the Magenta series on New City Press. I encourage you to go and look at all of those. Of course, we've had the the executive, the, the editor, the series editor of that, uh, Dr. Charlie Camosi. We've had him on a number of times, and we've talked about this series uh, in its other books. I'm so thrilled to be talking today with Dr. Vukov on this one. Uh, thanks so much again for being with us today. Yeah, it's been great to be here, TL. So we've talked about the idea of human enhancement. Um, we've talked about the difference between enhancement and uh, and therapy. We've talked about uh, the 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 transhumanist idea that I'm going to any any kind of enhancement that's possible, I'm going to go for it. I, I think of uh, Star Wars in this in this regard as the the he's more more machine than man now, kind of Darth Vader. And even in some of the more recent Star Wars series, there's there's a group of people who seek out these enhancements so that they can live uh, more fully in their minds. Um, and so we we have that that group of people. We, we've seen the idea of kind of a new eugenics of cr- trying to create a perfect society. There's another extreme, another response that we see to that, and, and that is all of these ideas are dangerous. They're they're scary. They can lead to bad places. And so we just need to get rid of all of them. I mean, we need to avoid anything that that smacks of enhancement and and live a more pure life the way that we used to. You argue in the book that this also is not really a viable response. And I'd, I'd like your um, your explanation as to why we can't just go back to the good old days. Yeah, so there's a few reasons for it. The first we've talked about a little bit already, which is that once you've got that distinction between therapy and enhancement, again, therapy roughly is something that aims to restore health, my eyeglasses, enhancement is something that explicitly aims to go beyond healthy functioning, parabinoculars. There's the problem already, is that 
a pair of binoculars are very difficult to try to argue are something unethical about them. Um, we were talking in the break too about coffee. Coffee on almost any definition that you care to give is going to count as an enhancement. It's aiming to increase your abilities, your attention, your wakefulness um, in a way that's artificial. It's using a, using a chemical to do all these things. So it's enhancing you. And there's some people who object to coffee use. Um, I don't. And I think that a lot of other people don't. And I think that's right not to. I think it's okay not to object to coffee, even though it's enhancing. So that's the first difficulty of the rejecting enhancement across the board is it's very hard to do that consistently, especially since some enhancements are pretty clearly to most people ethically unproblematic. Um, another one, sort of depending on how deep into the, the sort of what is an enhancement conversation you, you get into, you could argue that things like clothing or shelter are enhancements in some way because I live in Chicago, actually currently having a snowstorm today and tomorrow. If I was not in a good shelter and didn't have a good coat and good gloves and a good hat, um, I wouldn't do well. So I'm enhancing my own capacities for survival in the bleak Midwest winters um, in a way that wouldn't be possible otherwise. So all that's to say is that I think it's a, it's a hard line to maintain consistently that enhancement across the board is bad. The other thing I want to say is that I think it can be tempting to try and say enhancement is cross the board is bad. Or we just want to turn back the dial to some other form, form of life. But I think it's really hard to find where the line in the sand is going to be. So you could say, well, what really did us in was the internet. Okay, so let's get back to there. Well, we still had computers. Oh, yeah, computers probably weren't that great either. They, you know, robbed us of certain intellectual capacity. So let's rewind the clock back a little bit more. Typewriters, that's what it was. No, but you lose, you lose all the humanity of somebody's handwriting. Um, let's rewind back the clock. And this actually did happen. Plato, writing in 400 BC, notoriously lamented that even the written word was too much technology. Why? And his point is absolutely true. When we write things down, we're less prone to remember them. So you can think about all the great oral traditions of Homer, you know, of Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad. And these things were just spoken by people. Like that's that's where they came from. Hardly anyone, maybe there's a couple of people who actually practice this, but this is not common practice to memorize epic poetry now. And what's one of the things that killed it? Writing. So Plato was right. Um, but pen and paper, really, that's too much technology. So I guess part of the, the reason why I think the let's rewind back the clock and that will solve our problems Um even though, TL, I've got to admit that that's more of me, despite the fact that we're currently not in the same location, recording with a whole lot of technology right now. Um, I, I'm much more attracted to that kind of view than I am to the transhumanist movement. I just think it's it's a really hard view to maintain consistently, as in... Um, it's all bad, or we're going to rewind back to this point. I think it's just very hard to find, well, wh at what point is enough and why is it all bad? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think that specifically for us Catholics, um, it's, it's helpful to remember that the, the church and our faith speaks to these things in a living way, right? We, we're not just dependent on what was put in the Bible, because there's a lot of things that exist today that they would never have dreamed of or thought of, but that 
what has been handed down to us through the church is, is a living voice and a living magisterium that can look at these things with a critical eye and be able to separate the good from the bad and be able to discern uh, the, the thoughts and the intentions and, and explore the bioethics of a situation rather than just say technology good or technology bad and make just kind of a blanket distinction. Yeah. And I think one other thing to bring into the conversation is we could talk a long time about what it means to be made in the image of God, but part of what that might mean and part of what theologians have interpreted that to mean is that we have a creative aspect to ourselves. So just as God acts as sort of prime mover and first creator, so too humans are distinctively positioned that we're able to be sub creators, that we're able to create things for ourselves. Um, you don't need to read that as part of the Imago Dei, so, or part of the image of God. Um, I think it's a nice way of thinking about it, but maybe you have a different understanding of that. I still, as I think, just obvious that part of human nature is making things and altering our environment in the same way that bees build hives and ants build hills and beavers build dams. Humans make things. We alter our environments um, for ends that we've chosen. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that, oh, anything I do to nature or anything I do to myself is okay because it's human nature to alter myself and alter my environment. Um, that's clearly not where we want to go with that. Um, but at the same time, I think it mitigates the, against this idea that all technology or new innovations are bad because that, that's kind of part of what makes us the kinds of beings that we are. So to deny that um, across the board, I think, is also to risk sort of missing who we are and the kinds of beings that we are and how we engage with ourselves in the world around us. Well, and to, to bring that question of the Imago Dei back and to do a little compare and contrast, you, you brought up bees and, and other creatures that build. Uh, and yet, uh, if you look at a, a beehive from 200 years ago and you look at a beehive today, they are remarkably the same because there is a, a, a very innate structure that, that brings itself out naturally over and over. Uh, and when you look at a, a building or a house or a, an invention of a human 200 years ago to today, you see that there is a, a building upon what came before and an innovation and an artistry that we don't see anywhere else in the animal kingdom. And, and I think that I agree with you that that idea of in some way being creative and co-creators is part of what it means for us to be made in the image and likeness of God. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I think that, yeah, that there's this, there's this different kind of creativity in building and altering our environments that, that differs from the animals. And I think it's a really interesting point that, yeah, beehives from a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago look about the same, whereas architecture changes and the you know, my going back to coats in Chicago winter and you're in the Pacific Northwest, rain gear and winter gear has gotten tremendously better even in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, you put on rain gear and it felt like you were, you know, it was just putting on a piece of plastic and now it breathes and it's comfortable. Um, there, there is, there is a tendency, I think, for us moderns that I do want to resist that says that we've just gotten better and better and better as human beings through these technological innovations. And I, I want to resist that because I, I, I want to say that, well, no, human dignity is human dignity and we've always had it. And 
it's a it's a modern bias to think that we're somehow elevated compared to our ancestors that we've got it more figured out but at the same time i think that some of our technological innovations and our artistry um in some sense have progressed and changed and in ways that other animals um don't progress and change well and and to the you're thinking of architecture we are um advanced and suited to our time because you know i look at there's the whole conversation recently about um, Roman concrete, which is, this is a whole big tangent where Roman concrete's far better than our concrete today, but we can do it faster, right? It's going to fall apart faster, but we, we have found efficiencies that we have iterated and innovated on. Uh, and so let's maybe even look at that for a moment. Um, the idea of how do we, or what are the, the frameworks that we need to put in place to help us identify what are the kinds of um, innovations that are worth going after. And what are the ones that we should see some red flags and put up some caution and, and be more uh, discerning as we move toward? Yeah, I think it really comes back to taking some, taking some real time and discernment to think about what the good is and what the good that we are pursuing is. Um, as Catholics, we have that fairly set out before us. We're, we're aiming to worship God. We're aiming to serve our neighbor. We're sort of, you know, we can, we can look at the catechism for what exactly the human end that we're pursuing is. I think others though too can really take time to reflect, to think about what, what is a good human life? What does human flourishing look like? What is perfection that's genuinely human perfection look like? And I think when we start answering those questions, I think it becomes clear whether a certain technological innovation either across the board or for our own lives is going to serve those ends better or not. Um, again, just think about something as simple as owning a smartphone or a computer and really thinking through what do I think a flourishing life looks like? And what does the church teach me a flourishing look, life looks like? And now let me look at this and how does this fed into that vision? And I own a smartphone. Here it is. We're currently on a, there it is, right? I'm currently on a computer. So I, 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 I think that the answer is not always going to be no with new technologies or new innovations. And I actually think the same thing is going to be true with certain enhancing technologies that, Maybe there is a time and the place for them. Um, but I think really thinking about ultimate goals and taking that step back and reflecting is really, really crucial. Um, I end the book with, I, I teach at Loyola University, Chicago. So sort of involved in Jesuit spirituality and really close, close to that in my day-to-day -day working life. And St. Ignatius has this great part in the spiritual exercises called the principle and foundation. And I'm not going to try and give you a direct quote because I would mangle it, but it's this great litany of all these things that he wants to be and wants his directees and want people who are adopting the spiritual exercises to be indifferent to not indifferent as in, I don't care about them, but rather indifferent as in whichever one serves my goal of praising and reverencing and serving God. That's the one I want. And he says, riches and poverty, sickness and health and kind of goes down this list. And the idea is that once we've discerned what our goal is in life and what we once we've discerned what we're trying to do, then some of these other things like 
Does poverty help me in my pursuit of God? Well, it might, but maybe there's a case in which riches are actually not detracting from it. Maybe I'm called to be especially generous in my life. So I need to have those riches in order to serve God in the way that I'm called to. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's the, that's the answer I want to give you. It's kind of a frustrating answer because um, it's not this technology is always bad. There are some, we could have that conversation. There's some that the Catholic tradition is going to say, no, this application of that technology is always bad. But I think the vast majority of new technologies, even the enhancing technologies, the answer is going to be that I want to give, we have to sit and think back about what, what the good is, what a life lived for God looks like. And only then can we answer in particular circumstances if it's a good thing for us to adopt. Yeah. So the answer then comes back to, hey, I have to form my conscience. I have to be uh, uh, intentional about thinking about these things. I need to do that in community and in conversation with others in the church, including my spiritual leaders and my spiritual director. And I actually have to use prudence. I, I was looking for some kind of enhanced answer that would make it all easy and take all the difficulty away. But I think that's what we've been talking about today. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I think, I think while again, while there are some lines in the sand that our tradition gives us, I think for the vast majority, it's going to come back to conscience and prudence and these things that are, you know, viewed cynically wishy-washy, but I think viewed in a more positive light, it's precisely the way that Christ and the church is giving us freedom to think through and pursue ends in accordance with his will for us. So I, I, I find it in a, in a positive light and to be very encouraging, but yeah, the, the unfortunate news is that I can't give you a laundry list right now of what tech you should adopt and what tech you shouldn't adopt and where exactly the line in the sand is for every one of them. The book is The Perils of Perfection on the Limits and Possibilities of Human Enva Enhancement. It's available on the Magenta series at New City Press. We've got a link to it over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me, TL. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Vukov or you want to go back and listen to something again or share it with your friends over on social media, have no fear, all of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And while you're there, there's more to this conversation. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we like to give them a little bit extra, some extra content. You can learn more about that and find that content over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Just click that Patreon link there in the menu. Now let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and Church History. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of Church teaching by putting the Magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the Catechism, to the Fathers and Doctors of the Church, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 12. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, about what you will eat, or about your body, and what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Notice the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more important are you than birds? 
Can any of you, by worrying, add a moment to your lifespan? If even the smallest things are beyond your control, why are you anxious about the rest? Notice how the flowers grow. They do not toil or spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of them. If God so clothes the grass in the field that grows today and is thrown in the oven tomorrow, will he not much more provide for you, O you of little faith? As for you, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Do not worry any more. All the nations of the world seek for these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these other things will be given you besides. Do not be afraid any longer, little flock, for your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. The more we try to control, the more we realize how little control we have. And yet when we're faced with our own mortality, with the finite span of our life, well, it can drive us to do a number of things, whether that be to distract ourselves from that reality or whether it be to seek some way out of it, any way out of it, whether that be through creating a legacy, whether that be through doing something to expand our lives, as we were talking about in the show today. Whatever it is that we do, the more we grasp at it, the more it slips through our fingers. As Jesus said, the one who tries to save his life will lose it. And so what then is our response to be? Well, Jesus says it to us in our scripture passage today. Seek first the kingdom of God. Focus on the things that really matter. Seek first the kingdom of God and all the other things will be taken care of. And do not be afraid any longer, little flock, for your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. When we try to solve our own problems and find our own solutions and control our own destinies, all we're doing is giving in to that anxiety. And of course, modern science tells us that anxiety only shortens our lifespan. As Jesus says here, who by worrying can add even a single moment to your life? And of course, we know that anxiety does just the opposite. It subtracts from our life. And so the solution to all of this, to this uh, realization of our own mortality is to turn to the one who is immortal, to the one who overcomes the corruption of death, who saves us from that death, and to seek first his kingdom. And most of all, do not be afraid any longer, little flock, for your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Our reading today from Church History comes from Vatican II, from the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. It is in the face of death that the riddle of human existence grows most acute. Not only is man tormented by pain and by the advancing deterioration of his body, but even more so by a dread of perpetual extinction. He rightly follows the intuition of his heart when he abhors and repudiates the utter ruin and total disappearance of his own person. He rebels against death 
because he bears in himself an eternal seed, which cannot be reduced to sheer matter. All the endeavors of technology, though useful in the extreme, cannot calm his anxiety. For prolongation of biological life is unable to satisfy that desire for higher life, which is inescapably lodged in his breast. Although the mystery of death utterly beggars the imagination, the Church has been taught by divine revelation and firmly teaches that man has been created by God for a blissful purpose beyond the reach of earthly misery. In addition, that bodily death from which man would have been immune had he not sinned will be vanquished, according to the Christian faith, when man who is ruined by his own doing is restored to wholeness by an almighty and merciful Savior. For God has called man and still calls him, so that with his entire being he might be joined to him in an endless sharing of a divine life beyond all corruption. Christ won this victory when he rose to life, for by his death he freed man from death. Hence, to every thoughtful man a solidly established faith provides the answer to his anxiety about what the future holds for him. At the same time, faith gives him the power to be united in Christ with his loved ones who have already been snatched away by death. Faith arouses the hope that they have found true life with God. The root reason for human dignity lies in man's call to communion with God. For the very circumstance of his origin, man is already invited to converse with God. For man would not exist were he not created by God's love and constantly preserved by it. And he cannot live fully according to truth unless he freely acknowledges that love and devotes himself to his Creator. Pressing upon the Christian to be sure are the need and the duty to battle against every evil through manifold tribulations and even to suffer death. But, linked with the Paschal mystery and patterned on the dying Christ, he will hasten forward to resurrection and the strength which comes from hope. All this holds true not only for Christians, but for all men of good will in whose hearts grace works in an unseen way. For since Christ died for all men, and since the ultimate vocation of man is in fact one and divine, we ought to believe that the Holy Spirit, in a manner known only to God, offers to every man the possibility of being associated with this paschal mystery. Such is the mystery of man, and it is a great one, as seen by believers in the light of Christian revelation. Through Christ and in Christ, the riddles of sorrow and death grow meaningful. Apart from his gospel, they overwhelm us. Christ has risen, destroying death by his death. He has lavished life upon us so that as sons in the Son, we can cry out in the Spirit, Abba, Father. That reading again comes from the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes, and that's selections from number 18, 19, and 22. I have a little bit of homework for you this week. Look at the things and the technologies in your life 
that are supposed to enhance your life and hold them up to scrutiny? Does your desire for them come from some sense of anxiety? Are they actually serving you or are you serving them? And to help you parse it out, go pick up Dr. Vukov's book, The Perils of Perfection on the Limits and Possibilities of Human Enhancement, available over again on New City Press, part of the Magenta series. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.